Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our current self-titled series, we're looking at what it means to answer the call to be a disciple maker of disciple makers. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. Good morning. How y'all doing today? Good? Wonderful. Awesome. Well, I'm Tim, uh, Tim Peace. Uh, I'm the teaching minister here. It's like flashing the peace sign. Um, yeah, so I get to uh, bring the message today. Yeah, that was my introduction. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we'll move on. I wanted to start with a story. I was thinking about, I don't normally think too far in advance of the message because I try to you know, stay present and things like that. But when I found out I was getting to preach on this particular week and the topic, I immediately, my mind went back to uh, my childhood. And I want to show you a picture here. Uh, that's, that's my dad with the super cool mustache and sunglasses. Um, that's me with the 7-Up can. 7-Up can. Um, that's my brother. He is no longer shorter than me. Uh, he is much taller than me. But at that time, he was shorter than me. I was probably around five or six years old. My family went to South Carolina every year for a fishing trip at Santee Cooper. The lake was Lake Marion. We would go to a beach called Folly Beach, uh, and occasionally we'd take the two-hour trek to Myrtle Beach. Um, But we would go here every year, mainly for the fishing. My dad always had a bass boat. We would get out on the lake, and uh, we'd fish with him. And uh, so I wanted to tell you a story about what happened possibly on this actual trip. I've told you before that um, being a music person, if you haven't heard this before, then I'm telling you for the first time, but I'm a music junkie. I'm a musician person myself. And part of the reason or a big reason why I got into music is because when I was a little kid, I wanted to emulate my dad. And my dad used to, for relaxation, come home, and he'd take out a rock record, rock music record. He'd put it on. He'd plug in the uh, headphones. He'd get in his recliner and lay back and sit with the headphones on his ears and listen to music. Cranked up so loud that we could hear it in the room. So there was no watching TV when Dad was in his music quiet time. Uh, but I wanted to do this. As I watched my dad, I, I, I started to like the same kind of music. And so... The best treat in the world would be that uh, I'd be laying on the couch, my dad would finish listening to music, and he'd put Def Leppard on, and not hand me the headphones, he would just take the headphones and put them on my ears, and I was about four or five years old, and the rest is history. I love rock music still. So, um, so we, we would do that, but this trip, mind you, I, I wanted to mimic my dad in a different way. See, I thought my dad was a really great fisherman. And he didn't tell a bunch of fake fishing stories, but I just, I would watch him cast his line out into the, out in the water, you know, and he'd have one of those, you know, he'd have his rod, he'd, he'd throw it out there, it would be like a super fast motion, the line would just travel and travel, and then eventually he'd see the hook and the bait just plop into the water. I was like, man, he's good at that. So, on a particular trip, I decided I was going to mimic my dad. If you see in the picture here, we have a seat behind us 
You could unfold that and you could sit there and fish or you could fish off the side of the boat here. There's also a seat in the front. My dad was getting my brother set up to start fishing in the back. And I wanted to jump the gun because I thought, I've seen my dad do this several times. Now, I didn't have the, the kind of uh, reel that like clicked over. I had the kid fishing rod with the button. I also forgot to put the bait on because I thought, well, it's got a hook. That's all you need. They'll just come right to it, right? So I decide I'm going to throw the line out just like my dad. I reach back, go forward, click the button. Well, actually, it wasn't exactly in that order because this is what happened. I'm watching and I'm like, okay, I just did the same motion my dad does, but I didn't see the line. And I was like, there's no way I threw it further than my dad. Like, that can't, no one can do that. It's my dad. So I'm thinking, I'm like, it never hit the water. So I, I, I do what a good investigator does. I look up at the top of the pole and I realize the line's not going out into the water. It's curled backward. And I followed the line down and down and down. And suddenly I realize I've caught myself. Best catch ever. Right in the elbow. Ooh, here's what's funny about it. I didn't feel a thing. I, I guess I was just so stuck on watching what was going to happen that I didn't feel it hit me. But then when I looked down and realized a hook's not supposed to be in my elbow, then I could start to feel the burn. I took it out, and that's when the blood came. And if you know me, I don't like blood. So, uh, But anyway, here's the, the thing that I learned about that day, well, looking back on it. Um, things that are important in life are better caught than taught. But it actually takes uh, watching and having someone actually show you what to do and learning step by step and trial and error. It's not just mere mimicry. Mere mimicry gets you a hook in your arm. And this series that we're about to enter into today, we're going to talk about what it means to be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. Now, disciple is one of those words, it's a church word, it's a Bible word, and sometimes we just say it and we don't even know what it means, or we assume we know what it means and we haven't really given it much thought, but the word disciple that we have translated in English as disciple actually just means student or mentee or follower. It's basically, in the culture of Jesus, a rabbi would get disciples or followers or students around them, and they would teach them. They would teach them in their ways. And Jesus, being a rabbi, was on a quest to make disciples. And that's what we're going to look at today is the call of his first one. And we're going to do that by going to the Gospel of Luke. And the reason I picked Luke this morning is because of this. Matthew and Mark, when they tell the story, they leave out some details, and they also order the story a little bit differently. And it's Luke's order that teaches us something really, really important about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to make followers of Jesus. Which, by the way, if you read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you will know that that's what Jesus' last command was before he ascended to heaven. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And, lo, I will be with you always, even until the very end of the age. And then, whoop, he went up to heaven. That's what the story says. So that's what happened. He said that. That was his command. He didn't say go make 
Christians. He didn't say go make converts. He said make disciples. And he qualified that by saying, make disciples that are raised up in my teaching. And he didn't have to explain anymore. Do you know why? Because Jesus spent three years with these guys showing them how it was done. And that's what we're going to look at here. So I want you to open your Bibles or look at your screens, the phone screens, or, or this screen here, and follow along with me in Luke chapter 5. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners to come over with another boat and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus looked and said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, here's where this telling of the story is different from Matthew, Mark, and, and even John. When you read, especially in Matthew and Mark, it says effectively that Jesus just was walking along the shore one day and he saw Simon and he saw James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And he called them to come follow them, and I will make you fish for people. And it says they left their nets and followed him. That's it. That's also the first that we hear of Jesus' interactions with them. But in Luke, when you read chapter 4, you find out that this isn't Jesus' first encounter with Simon. And it's not Simon's first encounter with Jesus. Because what we find out is that Jesus had already been teaching at Peter's hometown, Capernaum. And we know this because when Jesus was in his, his hometown, Nazareth, teaching, they said to him, hey, perform the same things that you did at Capernaum here in front of us. Then, when Nazareth didn't get what they wanted and decided that they didn't like what he had to say and booted him out, he went back to Capernaum. And what we end up finding out is that he taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. He did miracles at the synagogue. He was invited to homes in Capernaum, one of which belonged to Simon. Jesus performed a miracle by healing Simon's mother-in-law of a high fever 
And then it says that Jesus said, I have to go proclaim the, the good news and the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I, I was sent. So we find out Jesus has gone to Capernaum. He's left Capernaum. He goes back to Capernaum. He leaves again. And then we come to our story where it says one day he's at the lake of Gennesaret. Now you're thinking, well, that's not Capernaum. Actually, it is. Because what you find out, see, the Bacons and Angie and I got to go to Israel at the beginning of the year. And when you look at the town of Capernaum and you're kind of facing it from the place where you walk in, they've got it all gated off here. And you're looking forward, you see the ruins of the town and to the left, you see uh, the, the synagogue standing there. Now the synagogue that's there was from the 6th century, but we see the foundation underneath it from the 1st century, Jesus' time. So likely the location Jesus was teaching. And beyond that, the land slopes down to a seashore. And that sea is the Sea of Galilee. But they would have called that portion that was close to Capernaum the Lake of Gennesaret. So here's the funny thing. Jesus kind of been hanging around and kind of scoping Peter and his partners out for a while. He's a rabbi. He's looking for followers. So he's been going and teaching. He's been performing miracles. And now he's come back and he's placed himself on the shore right as they're coming in from a day's work. A long night's work, actually. And it says that the crowds were pressing in around him. They, they've heard him before. They want to hear him again. They want to see what he's going to do. They want to hear what he's going to say. And so they press in. And he's thinking, this is not an ideal scenario. So he goes and he picks one of the two boats that are there. Guess whose it is? Simon's. And he gets in. And he calls Simon over after he's finished washing the nets for the day. And he says, push the boat out just a little bit more. He sits down and he begins to teach. Now what's interesting here in terms of detail is that in Luke, we don't get to hear what Jesus taught in that moment. You know, everywhere else we get, you know, if you've got a red letter Bible, you get to see what Jesus had to say. Here it just says that he taught them and then he finished. It doesn't say what. After he finishes, Simon is told then, put the boat out into the deep water. Now, here's another detail thing. Luke decided to tell us that Jesus got into the boat to begin teaching. Do you know what he doesn't say? That Jesus got out. See, we might have a picture in our mind, probably because of the end of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is standing at the shore and he's just commanded these guys to go out and work again. Try it again, guys. Just put the net where I tell you. And we imagine the miracle going something like this. They, they throw it out there, and then um, the fish hear the Jesus whistle in the water because, you know, it's a miracle. And then they immediately just go to the net, and they're like, catch us, woo! But see, it's not the fish miracle that's actually the important and stunning part of this story. It's actually Peter's change in the story. Because Simon has no doubt been around Jesus and he's developed some level of respect for him, but he hasn't developed any level of reverence or humility toward him because he belly aches when Jesus first tells him to put the boat out. He says, you know, I'm a fisherman. That's what I do for a living. You're not. I just had a bad night of work and you think you're going to tell me how to do my job and then suddenly we're going to make you know, 
some product here? You know, in Luke 4, it says that Nazareth said, isn't this the son of Joseph? And the reason they said that is not because they were wondering if this is, you know, the kin of the neighborhood. They said that because they knew Joseph was an artisan or a carpenter, as we like to call it today, but it's more of an artisan. Joseph was a, a stonemason, stone worker, construction guy, handyman kind of guy. And so if you were a good Jewish boy growing up, there were two things you grew up with. One, you grew up learning and being rooted in your faith. It was a family ordeal and a community ordeal. The family raised you up, you went to synagogue, you learned from the rabbis, and that's what happened in life. But there was a second thing that would happen. The father would teach the son their trade. And Jesus' father was not a rabbi. He was a carpenter or an artisan. And the people of Nazareth heard and didn't like Jesus' teaching, so they're sitting here saying, uh, what business do you have teaching us? Aren't you Joseph's son? Uh, aren't you an artisan? Aren't you just a handyman? Peter's got the same attitude, except this time he's saying, you're not a fisherman. Don't tell me how to do my job. But he also stops and because this is a hospitality culture, he decides to tell Jesus, you know what, I'll do it because he's asked. There may even be a little hint of sarcasm from Peter when he says this. Oh, because it's you, I'll do it. Sure. But Jesus doesn't get out of the boat. Jesus isn't a micromanaging person, so he didn't stay in just to micromanage, but he also doesn't just give them a job and then leave them to their own devices either. Jesus stays in the boat and goes with them. He stays close to them. He's been forming a relationship, at least at a distance with Peter, and now he's coming closer, telling Peter what to do, being there for encouragement to do it. And Peter puts the nets out, and they get the miraculous catch of fish. And they're in awe. But Peter's response changes his whole perception of Jesus. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that God constantly would reveal himself to people uh, through theophany, uh, through a burning bush, uh, through an angel of the Lord sent, in all sorts of uh, miraculous, wondrous ways. And normally it would be the case that if someone would see a theophany or see one of these um, instances of God revealing himself, their response normally was, get down with your face on the ground and tremble. And I was just reading, uh, I just finished the book of Judges, and I was thinking this week about the fact that Samson's parents, when, when God reveals himself to them, they not only respond in that uh, humble state, but, but Samson's dad actually says, we've seen the Lord, we're going to die. Because any good Jewish person would know they're unworthy and God just will not have anything to do with sinful people. At least that's what their mindset is. So to be in his presence means they're going to be incinerated. So it's not only that Simon's countenance has changed here to humility, but his response to Jesus, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man, is telling about what he thinks about who Jesus is. 
See, the first century Jewish world was full of rabbis. It was full of miracle workers. That was not uncommon in the time. But when Jesus told Peter how to do his job, and it worked, and he stayed with him, and he put up with him, and he still cared for him, and he still valued him, something shifted for Simon in the boat. And he responds like any good Jewish person would have in reverence to God in the flesh. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I'm a failure. I'm not just a failure of a fisherman last night. I'm a failure and I'm unworthy in general. That's what Simon is saying. And that's where the story gets really good. Because Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you are, get out of my presence, does he? Mm -mm. First he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be in my presence. Then he says, from now on, you will fish for people. Hey, you had a bad night last night. I just showed you you can still fish, and you're going to keep fishing for people. Jesus not only valued Simon Peter as he is, but he showed him that he will continue to be valued, that he will continue to be loved, that he'll continue to be cared for. Jesus is saying, you think you're unworthy, and he's saying, I don't need you, but I want you, and you can do it, and I'm going to give you something to do. And it's at this that Peter and his companions, James and John, pull their boats up to shore and leave everything and follow him. Now, let's not misunderstand what that means there. When it says that they left everything, it means they put their stuff away from the day and followed Jesus. That's it. A lot of us get in our minds that these guys went 100% uh, into uh, poverty and no food, no home, no nothing for three years until Jesus was crucified. And then suddenly, uh, you know, they went and became these missionaries. That's not what happened. We know this because in the Apostle Paul's letters about where he talks about Peter, he says, Peter brought along a believing wife with him, so Peter didn't leave his family. At the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter is out fishing, so he didn't ditch his boat. What this means is, is that following Jesus doesn't devalue everything else in your life. It gives value to all of it. And it means that God wants it, and he wants you. And he's calling you. Because what Jesus started with this fisherman in the very beginning was meant to have a reach as far as you and me. So how does that look today? What does it look like to follow Jesus today? What does it look like to be someone that turns somebody else into a follower of Jesus today? Well, I've got an illustration for you that happened this week. I've had bad luck with my mailbox for the last year. It first got knocked down in a storm last year, and then my friend Mark helped me put it back up. We kind of rigged it. It was sturdy enough, but apparently not sturdy enough to handle, you know, neighborhood kids. So on Monday, 
On Monday, we realize our mailbox is leaning in a way it shouldn't be, and the wood is snapped, and the wood has come loose on the other side. And uh, our neighbors stopped us. We were getting ready to go out uh, to the grocery store, I think, that evening. And our neighbors stopped us, and they're like, hey. So our boy was walking his dog, and the dog got wrapped around the uh, mailbox, and the dog then went and ran and pulled the, the boy, and then it got knocked over. This sounded like the sort of story I probably would have made up to my parents. Um, <laughs> But I appreciated them letting me know, and they told me that they were going to put the, the mailbox back up. Now, as you know, we've had terrible weather after that, and we needed actually to be able to get our mail. So my friend Craig called a, decided to have me and my buddies get together at McDonald's at 6.45 a.m., practice being retired guys early. And um, so we're, we're in, actually the funny thing is, there was a guy that walked in there and he, he's, he's struggling to walk, but he's got his wits about him. He turns to us and he goes, good morning, young men. He goes, be careful out there on the roads. There's a lot of women drivers out there. <laughs> and then he goes and tells the McDonald's workers the same joke. And then he tells a lady that's standing in line the same joke. Now, here's the funny thing. He had his wife with him. And you know what? She helped him get his seat. She helped him unwrap his newspaper. She brought his coffee. I don't know if I were him, I'd ditch the joke. But anyway, <laughs> he did it. So well, that, that's the environment we were in. So we're talking and I'm telling the guys, I'm like, okay. I was like, I, I'm a bit of a pushover. I don't want to go ask the neighbors if they're going to put our mailbox back up. But I also like, don't know if they're going to or not. So my friend Aaron stops and he goes, hey. He's like, I got to go to Home Depot. Let's stop. It's early enough in the day. We'll get some wood, we'll stop and get some tools from the church, and we'll put the box back up. So we went to Home Depot. I got an eight-foot-long four-by-four like square board. I got to feel like Jesus because I carried it on my shoulder. Um, And then we went home after stopping to get some tools. And here's what happened. Aaron is a really good handyman guy. He could have put the box up by himself. I, on the other hand, am not a good handyman guy. As a matter of fact, when he asked me for a tape measure, I went in the house and got a pink one. That's what we have. Hey, you know what? I got a deal, okay? Never forget. Anyway, so I go in and I get it. But here's what we do. We, Aaron shows me how to properly measure, how to mark the board. I actually used the saw. We dug out together three feet into the ground, we attached the board to the box, we drilled it in place, and we put the post in the ground. Now, if I'm being honest with you, Aaron did 80% of the work, I did about 20. But here's the thing. Aaron could have done it by himself, but he taught me how to do it, let me partake in doing it. And so when he and I were talking about this week's sermon I told him, I was like, you know, I was like, it's funny, as we were talking about what does it mean to be a disciple or to to make disciples of somebody else? And I had just thought, you know, Didi shared a story about Simon Sinek uh, from the book, Start With Why. Occasionally I'll watch one of his videos, he had a minute 30 second video on uh, what it means to be a mentor or to go find a mentor. And he said, you know, the funny thing is, most of us think 
that to be a mentor, we just pick a random person, or if we're going to find a mentor, we just pick someone that's never met us before. He said, but real mentorship starts with the relationship. It starts with the friendship, and then you learn that your friend has something to offer you, and you offer an opportunity to your friend, and eventually the relationship grows into a mentor-mentee relationship, but it starts off on the relationship level. And I was telling Aaron, I was like, you know, I was like, you and I are buddies. I was like, you, you could have let me figure out my mailbox on my own, but you said, not only did you say you would help me, but you told me that morning I could do it. You said, I know you can do it. And he went home with me and showed me how. So I got to, t- I was like, you know, imagine if we looked at the mailbox thing like making disciples, like making mailboxes, putting mailboxes together. And let's say over time, Aaron kept showing me every mailbox more how to do that, and eventually the amount of work shifted. Then the second mailbox we do, it's a 30-70 split, then 40-60, then 50-50, and eventually, because Aaron cares about me enough to teach me how to do it myself, he releases me and I start doing more of the work. Now eventually, when I arrive at mailbox making, I would be like Aaron and I can do it by myself, but I wanna share what it's like to make a mailbox somebody else. So I go find, there's probably no one else as inept at making mailboxes as I am, but if there were this hypothetical person, I would go find them and I'd repeat the pattern that Aaron did with me. First I'd do 80, he'd do 20, and then so on. That's what Jesus did with his followers. And it wasn't because he needed them, it's because he wanted them. The biggest call of our lives is not out of obligation. The call to be a disciple and to make disciples is a call of love from Jesus. It's proof that Jesus loved his earliest followers. It's proof that he loves us. And when we answer that call, it's proof that we love somebody else. That's our call. And you know, Aaron, when we were sitting in McDonald's, he said something, and my wife was talking earlier this week about physical trainers and the same thing. Good trainers, good teachers, good anybody that's showing someone else how to do something always starts with you can do it. But they don't leave you alone to do it by yourself. Remember when Jesus told his disciples to go make disciples, the last thing he said was actually a command. We always read it as, lo, I'm with you always. But he actually says, behold, take notice, look, see, pay attention, remember, I am with you always. He got in the boat with Peter when he told him to cast the nets and he stayed in the boat with him. He doesn't leave you or I alone to answer the call. And we don't leave one another alone when we help each other answer the call. So throughout this series, I want you to remember that as a foundation. Our highest calling in life, a calling of love by the God of the universe, is to be a partner in his mission to make disciples of Jesus. You and I can do it. We need him and we need each other. I can promise you that Jesus will always be with us in the task. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for being so good and so gracious to us. I thank you for the fact that you don't leave us alone, uh, that you don't, uh, you don't oblige us to just uh, work for you because, uh, because we have to or because um, your whole plan will fall apart without us. I love the fact that we don't have that pressure. But instead, you love us enough to bring us in and to bring us close And God, I pray that that love that your son showed Peter and that he showed us by going to the cross for us that uh, that same love uh, will not only be felt by us but will be shared uh, by us with others around us. Whether it's with one another in this church family, whether it's the people that we see on a day-to-day basis, I pray that that love uh, and, and the answered call will come to fruition in our lives. And I just pray, God, that you will encourage us, guide us, and equip us as you promised uh, to do that. We love you and we thank you for being so good to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.